Well, good morning. My name is Dave, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's great to be together with you this morning. It's great to be back. Yeah, if you didn't know, I was on. Oh. Thank you. Margo, I can always appreciate, you know, count on you to give me some applause. I love that. But it is great to be back. I missed you all. If you didn't know, I was on vacation for the last three weeks. We spent, our family spent a few days on Saturna Island, which is one of the Gulf Islands. And then we headed over to Vancouver Island and drove up to Parksville to camp for two weeks at our favorite campsite, Rath Trevor Beach. Now I know for some people, camping is the very last thing you would ever want to do on vacation. For you, two weeks of camping sounds more like punishment than it does holiday. There you go. But I love camping because I enjoy being out in nature for extended periods of time. I love the smell of the pine needles on the forest floor. I love the feel of the breeze off of the ocean as it wafts through my, the screens on my tent while I'm sleeping. I love the, the chittering noise the squirrels make and even that strange sound of a raven's wings as it flies overhead. And all of this enjoyment of these things culminates not only in a good holiday for me, but also a transcendent encounter with the living God. Like many of you being out in nature, it helps me to connect with the Creator. The fiery sunsets, they give me an appreciation of His artistry. The roaring waves off of the Pacific, they strike me with wonder at His awesome power. I even find myself chuckling sometimes at some fabulously weird creatures that surely display God's great sense of humor when he made those things. But through God's, though God's handiwork in creation reveals many of his qualities, God wants more for you and I than just admiring his character and talents from a distance. He wants a lifelong transforming intimate connection with us where we come to know and love him personally so today we are concluding our summer series in the psalms with psalm 19 where we see how our experiences with god's presence should move us from revelation to relationship and so I would ask that as we read the text, it's going to be on the screen above. Would you stand with me this morning, if you're able to, as we read God's word? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. 
The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eye. And the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their error? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sin. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now I'm going to be referring back to these verses in this psalm throughout the sermon. And I would just encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you as we go through this. Now you may have noticed as I was reading this psalm that there are three distinct sections, each with a different theme. First, verses 1 to 6 are a song of creation praising their creator. Then verses 7 to 11 are a celebration of God's word and the many benefits of scripture. And then finally, in verses 12 to 14 of the psalm, they present a theme of repentance through the psalmist's personal prayer. Now, some scholars believe, because of the diversity of these themes, that this is an indication that this psalm originally wasn't one, but rather it was two psalms, which a later editor came along and put the two together. However, despite the section's differences, I believe that there is a coherence of thought as this psalm combines beautiful poetry with profound biblical theology. C.S. Lewis said of Psalm 19, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And I think a careful reading of this psalm reveals a movement of growing in understanding and familiarity with God. Moving from further off to drawing close. From a formal to an intimate relationship with God. Now one of the ways we see this movement is in the titles that are used for God throughout this psalm. In the first section of creation praise, verses 1 to 6, the author uses the Hebrew word El, which is the most common and generic word for God in the Hebrew language. Then, in the second section, celebrating the Torah, the psalmist uses the phrase, the Lord, or Yahweh, which is the covenant name for God. God revealed his covenant name to Moses back in Exodus chapter 6 when he reminded the people that he was their God and they were his people. And covenant means that they are in this committed relationship with one another. Finally, in the third section, where the psalmist gets the most personal with his prayer of repentance, there he addresses God as my rock and my redeemer, indicating God's personal role in his life. We also see this movement from lesser to greater understanding and relationship in the subject of these three sections, right? In the first section, the psalmist describes how creation declares the glory of God, speaking about how the heavens and the skies proclaim the works of his hands. Of course, the skies don't 
literally speak of God's attributes using vocal cords, but in the same way that I recognize God's creativity in nature that surrounds me when I'm camping, the psalmist says that what humans see in the skies above make known some pretty incredible things about the one who made it. The words the psalmist uses here for heavens and sky would not only include things like the blue that we see and those clouds, but also the sun and the moon, the stars and the planets. It is amazing to me to think how for thousands of years people have looked upon those same celestial bodies that we look at today, day after day, night after night, and each time they have received a wordless but powerful message of God's greatness and glory. That's incredible. The Apostle Paul, he expressed it this way in Romans 1. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. The psalmist then moves from the heavens in general to the sun specifically, describing how God has made the sun to run its course across the sky. Today we understand that the sun doesn't actually move across the sky, though it appears that way to our eyes, but in fact, it is much more complicated and much grander than that. God made the earth to orbit the sun while rotating on its axis. Imagine how blown away the psalmist would have been had he understood that. Think about the songs that he would have written about the Lord had he known about the wonders of our solar system. I love how the psalmist describes the sun as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber or as a champion rejoicing to run his course. Now, when I got married and I was a groom, I didn't have a tent or pavilion to make my grand entrance from. I wish I did, right? But at my wedding, like most weddings these days, it's the bride who makes this grand entrance, right? Like I was standing at the front waiting and everybody stood up and Andrea, she made her grand entrance from the back of the, the, the church and every eye was on her and her eyes were on me and she looked and she thought to herself, he's laughing at me. But as she got closer, she realized that I was actually tearing up. I was crying, but that's okay. In fact, that is good. You see, I was doing what I was designed to do, which is rejoicing over God's blessing on that day because those were happy tears. And that is exactly what the psalmist is saying about the sun. It is giving glory to its creator by doing exactly what it is designed to do, providing warmth and light. Now, the second analogy the psalmist gives I admit, can be a bit more confusing for most of us because he describes the sun as a champion who rejoices to run his course. But this doesn't make sense because no one really enjoys running. Amen, right? Yeah, come on. Now, had bicycles been invented back then and the psalmist described the sun as rejoicing over cycling his course, I think we could all easily understand that. Now, the image this metaphor conveys is of an athlete who has worked themselves up into this energetic 
frenzy, right? They're in their tent, and they cannot wait to rush headlong into the race with this great sense of joy to be active at last after this anxious tension of waiting. It does remind me of when I have been in some cycling races where all the cyclists are corralled together behind the starting line and everybody is filled with this nervous energy and with this great anticipation. It's hard when the starting gun goes not to just burst out of the gates and just go way too fast at the beginning because you're so full of energy and you're so glad to finally be riding your bike. And it's this gladness that the psalmist says the sun experiences when cycling its course. The sun doesn't actually experience these emotions. However, what the text is implying by saying that the sun rejoices here in verse 5 and then later on in verse 8 describing God's precepts as giving joy is that when any of God's creatures follow his laws, whether his natural laws or whether those revealed in Scripture, there is joy. Whenever any of God's creatures follow God's laws, there is joy. Now, before we move on to the second section in the psalm, I want us to pause and consider again this role that creation plays in testifying to the existence and greatness of God. Not too long ago, we did a series in the book of Genesis which describes the care and the love that God put into creating his world and all of the creatures in it. And that the responsibility and privilege of humanity is to care for his world. See, Christians are often known for vehemently defending and protecting the Bible from abuse or attacks. Because we believe that it is special revelation from God about God. But we should be equally known for passionately defending and protecting creation from abuse and attacks too. Because it is the natural revelation from God about God. And while there are people throughout our world who still do not have Bibles in their language, there is no part of humanity that has escaped the proclamation of the heavens about the Creator. And just as creation pours forth speech and reveals knowledge about the Creator, even though they use no words and no sound is heard from them, as Christians, you and I also have a voice that testifies about God, even when we are inaudible. We have a voice that testifies about God, even when we're inaudible. You see, when people know that we are believers, they will inevitably make judgments about our faith and our God by how we live. Our lives testify to others about him. And so a good question for each of us to ask ourselves is, what are our lives saying to those around us about our God? Now, don't get me wrong. Words matter, just as we're going to see in the second part of the psalm. But actions and activity matter a great deal. And just as the sun radiates the glory of God, our lives should reflect the light of Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. 
Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, while nature is able to reveal the artistry and the power of the Creator, we have to admit that nonverbal communication, no matter how good it is, can often be misunderstood. We need something more. And so it is God's gift of Scripture that reveals a deeper understanding of who He is, how He has worked in this world, and also how He has designed humans to live in order that we would flourish. And this is why we see the psalmist praising Scripture in the second part of this psalm. It moves from this general understanding and relationship with the Creator that we can receive through the natural world's revelation to a greater understanding and deeper relationship with the Lord Yahweh that we can only receive through His Word. In verse 7, he writes, he starts out by saying, The law of the Lord is perfect. Refreshing the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Now the law he's referring to here is the Torah. For an Israelite at this time, that was the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. By the time Jesus came along, the law of the Lord would have been, the entire Old Testament would have been considered the law of the Lord. And for Christians today, the law of the Lord refers to the whole word of God, the Old and the New Testament, but especially the teachings and commands of Jesus our Lord. So when we read here that the law of the Lord is perfect, some of us may get hung up on that lofty claim. Perfect? Many Christians today get caught up in fights over that too, arguing about words like inerrancy and infallibility and more often than not i find that those who participate in these fights or these fights themselves are unhelpful don't get me wrong scripture is the word of god i don't think we can make a loftier claim than that and it is our authority and it is the guide for our lives and one of the greatest gifts that god has ever given us but when this text says that the law of the Lord is perfect, it is not saying that everything within it is historically and scientifically factual. The word perfect here, it means complete, whole, that it's not lacking anything. And it is this essential wholeness of God's word that makes it so valuable and praiseworthy. The psalmist says that it refreshes the soul, but that word here, refresh, could also be translated restore, and it is commonly the word used to describe repentance and obedience to God. And the word soul, it's not just referring to a person's spirit, but rather a person's entire being. And so this verse is making an amazing claim, saying that God's word it is so complete, it is able to restore and to refresh the whole person. That is incredible. And I don't know about you, but I know that there are some things in my life I need made whole. Anybody else feel the need for some refreshment here or some restoration in your life? But how is God's word able to do that? 
the psalm goes on to describe various ways, saying things like, these statutes make wise the simple, or that his commands give light to the eyes. But let me tell you what I think is the key to all of them. It's not that the scriptures in and of themselves restore and refresh. Rather, it is the one to whom these commands ultimately belong who makes us whole. You see, the psalmist doesn't just say that the law is perfect. It's the law of the Lord that is perfect. It's the statutes and precepts of the Lord that are trustworthy and give joy. These aren't just anyone's commands. These are the commands and decrees of Yahweh that radiate light and endure forever. He is not only the creator of the universe, but he is the covenant God who made you and loves you and promised himself to you and to me. Hebrews 13.5 reminds us, saying, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So that we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. In the second half of verse 9, the psalmist writes, The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. The word firm here means that God's ways are fixed. They're secure. His laws are not going to bend or break or change. And that might be concerning for some people. That makes it appear as if God's not flexible, like he's unwilling to change his ways. That's not very progressive of God. But God doesn't need to be progressive because he is perfect. And when I say that God is perfect, I not only mean that he is whole and complete and not lacking anything, I also mean that he is inerrant and infallible. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-loving, and he is all-good. And that's why God doesn't need to change his ways or his decrees, because they are also good. And they're not just good for him. They are good for us. They are good for all of humanity and all of creation. And that's what it means when it says his decrees are righteous. I've talked about this word righteous a lot, probably at nauseum for some of you, right? So if you don't know by now, stamp this in your brains. Righteous, it means about being in right relationship. And so God's decrees, they're all about helping us to live in a right relationship with him, with others, with ourselves, and the creation. And so God doesn't need to change. His decrees don't need to be revised, right? They are exactly what we need to flourish and to find the harmony that God desires for us. But unlike God, we humans, we like to change the rules. We like to change our ways, not just because we are progressive, but also because we are sinful. There are times, you know, where the changes we make are good. Times where we realize the way that we are living today or things that we have done in the past are wrong. And so we change our ways or our laws to make things right. And that is good. But often humanity has changed our ways or the laws not because they were wrong or bad, but because we have progressed further into sin. And we want things to conform to our sinful way of thinking and living. 
And so in order to make ourselves feel comfortable and justified, we change those ways and those laws. We've been doing this ever since we rebelled against God's command from the very beginning in that garden to live depending on him, in relationship with him. Rather than living according to the creator's design, we believe the lie that the snake told us that we could go it our own way. And so we chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We chose to take from it to decide what is right and wrong for ourselves, that we would be the arbiters of what is good and what is bad. And so we have gone our own way. And instead of becoming like Yahweh, we have become more like the gods of the ancient Near East that the people around Israel worshipped at the time that this psalm was written. Those ancient Near Eastern gods, they were unpredictable. They were notoriously changeable. And so humans could never be certain exactly what the gods demanded of them because they could just change the rules like that. These gods also lied, cheated, stole, and were sexually promiscuous. Imagine how exhausting and frightful and unnerving it would be to worship a god like that. Never knowing what was expected of you from one day to the next. Or that the powers that rule over your life were far less moral than you. In fact, I don't think we have to imagine too hard. I think we live in eerily similar circumstances. I'm not just referring to any human governments that rule over us. Rather, the spirit of the age that we live in promotes human thinking and progress to the highest levels of judgment and power, and yet it is just as unpredictable and notoriously changeable as those ancient Near Eastern gods were, and they are also morally corrupt. You see, in a world like ours, Yahweh's unchangeable nature and firm decrees, they are a precious gift that bring reassurance especially to those people who want to honor God but struggle to know how to live appropriately in such a complex world. This is why his word is more precious than gold to the psalmist. Knowing that God will never change or change his ways, it's priceless. The fact that through his word we can begin to know God and to know his good ways because they are for our flourishing, that's sweet, sweeter than honey from the comb. And even if you and I don't understand God's ways, and how can we ever be expected to fully understand God's ways? His ways are much higher than ours. But even if from our limited point of view, we, we struggle to grasp why his ways are the way we are, we can still trust God and trust his ways because he is good. The psalmist understands this. He understands that God's ways are much higher than his own, and this is why he continues to refer to himself as a servant. And by living according to God's direction, the psalmist knows that he will flourish. He says, by keeping them, there is great reward. But he also understands his inability to keep God's ways. He knows that he is a broken, sinful, rebellious human who cannot keep God's perfect way perfectly. 
And that's the whole point of God's revelation. It is supposed to lead us to a relationship with him. And you see, it is only through a relationship with God where we can begin to keep his ways. It's only through a relationship with him where we can receive forgiveness from our hidden faults and our willful sins. It's only through the grace and mercy of God that we can be blameless because none of us are sinless. None of us are free of guilt. However, we can be judged innocent when we trust in God who took care of the punishment we deserve on our behalf. We sang about that. That's why it is a wonderful cross. In the Old Testament, Jesus, or God allowed the blood of the animals sacrificed by the priests to pay the price for human sin. The problem was, Hebrews 10 tells us, the priests had to continue to make these sacrifices over and over again because, well, humans continue to sin over and over, and we still do today. It says, under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, Jesus, he offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sin, good for all time. And then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. And there he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect, whole, complete, not lacking anything. Those who are being made holy. See, God's revelation and scripture, it's so, so good. And I'm so thankful for it. But it's not the scriptures that save you or me. It's Jesus who does that. And neither creation nor the Bible are the fullness of God's revelation, but they both rightly accomplish what God intends them to, right? He intends their revelation, their witness, to lead people to a relationship with him through Christ, in whom Colossians 2 says, lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Jesus is the fullness of God's revelation. And if you put your trust in him, if you live according to his ways, following his words and scripture and his leading by his Holy Spirit, then like the psalmist, you too can be forgiven and he will be your rock when your world feels like it's chaotic. He will anchor you. And he will be your redeemer, rescuing you from sin and death. And isn't that more precious than gold? Isn't that sweeter than honey? He ends his prayer here, the psalmist, by saying, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. And if we're all honest, we know that our words and our thoughts are often not pleasing to God. They are far from good. They are often not righteous, and they often hurt our relationships. But thanks be to God. He has given us the gift of repentance. And what a gift it is. We see the psalmist entering into repentance in the final section of this psalm. It is the opportunity for us to turn around from the bad way that we have been going, receive forgiveness, and follow Jesus on his good road again. What amazing grace. 
My favorite expression of the gift of repentance is this Lord's Supper, which we're going to be taking together in a few moments. It represents his body broken for our sins and his blood poured out for our transgressions. When the Apostle Paul wrote the church in Corinth who were struggling with their relationships with one another and especially overtaking this meal together, he gave them some instructions. He says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. So we're going to be taking this, and as the elements are handed out in a moment, we're going to take the time that it takes to hand them out and consider how have we been living and whether or not our relationship with God or with others is right. And if there are things that are not right, and that'll probably be the case for most of us, then we can confess it to him. And I understand, confession, it's always hard. But Jesus loves us, and we need to trust him. It says in his word, if that we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then with great joy, like when the sun runs its course, we can respond together taking these elements as a way to acknowledge that he is faithful to forgive and he restores us because he is our rock. He is our redeemer.